0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast. Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Sharper Survival Adventures.
1: Arvif Highlights. The Pregosian Campaign.
0: And Dutch Occultism.
1: Detective, I'm trapped in a diabolical dilemma. The spirits are restless, as on Halloween night,
0: and... Hold on, ma'am. Here in Sunset City, every night's Halloween. What's the hocus-pocus?
1: Neighbors are vanishing, jewels are missing, and even the mayor's tangled in a web of witchcraft. Meow!
0: Fear not, for the magical kitties of the Cat Eyes Detective Agency can handle any Halloween whodunit.
1: But how, Detective? In Sunset City, secrets are as common as candy corn in October and run deeper than a witch's cauldron.
0: Enter Magical Kitty Save the Day, the bewitching role-playing game for all ages. Its newest hometown source Book Kitty Noir, uncovers all the secrets lurking beneath the perfect facade of Sunset City. Kitty
1: Noir? The spellbinding blend of classic film noir, spine-tingling mysteries, and eerie science fiction?
0: That's right, and here's an extra Halloween treat. A full-size poster map of Sunset City, perfect for planning your spooktacular adventures. Get it now from Atlas Games.
1: We're launching into spooky season. It's already October when you're listening to this, and that's as good an excuse as any to plug our own work, specifically the Horror Cinema Essentials audiobook, in which we gather all of the Horror Essentials segments from this very podcast into a super convenient listening audiobook form available at Bandcamp, and you just type in canonrobin.bandcamp.com backslash album backslash horror-cinema-essentials, Dash and uh it'll show right up. It's the whole thing, all 17 segments, beautifully chaptered. You get to hear Will march a little bit. How exciting is that? And I know you have it. I know you've already bought it, but what about a Halloween gift? I don't say burn them all to CDs and give them out as trick-or-treats. I don't want you to get your house egged, but, you know, think about giving it to your friends at a spooky grown-up party if you're going to one. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive and screaming in horror as he points behind you, welcome us into a gaming hut beset by foes without and within, because today we are looking at the adventure crucible scenario type known as survival. And we're going to talk about the structure of a survival adventure, a survival scenario. Robin, what makes it a survival scenario as opposed to a safely kill monsters and take all their belongings scenario?
0: Right. Well, I think the word safely Mm -hmm. (laughs) indicates that, first of all, you're outnumbered, you're in trouble. I think the, although we'll discuss in a moment how to put this on its feet, to put it on the run, I think these typical Survival Scenario is also a bottle episode, so that rather than exploring an area as you do in a dungeon and gradually expanding the area that you control, this is about typically being constrained, often in a single location, being in in one space. But most importantly, here you are not looking for the adversaries as you do in a dungeon or in a string of fights, but the adversaries are by and large coming at you. Now, uh, occasionally you might, you know, leave... The house you're trapped in to go and, you know, take the fight to the zombies or the triffids or whatever it is. But basically, here you're in defensive mode. Things are coming at you. And it's not even so much about victory, but as the name of the type suggests, of survival, of making it through. And that's why typically this is going to be a, a one shot. Uh, whether it's your uh, Halloween game that you're going to play with your uh, players or something you're going to do at a convention, you can do a more extended survival scenario, but chances are because it's tough on you emotionally and also because it is challenging for a GM to keep momentum going when players are hunkered down and in defensive mode, this is the one that I think works really well in a shorter format. And it is one that I think
1: works well with other types of scenarios. And you say that it makes an ideal one shot, which it does, but it also makes a great palette cleanser or palette changer for a regular game. You're doing your regular game, but suddenly you're in a situation where you're on the back foot You know, you're no longer the uh, guys who are going into the dangerous dungeon, but retreating to the safe town. The town is not safe now. There's a curse. There's an orcish warband. There's zombies. There's uh, dream ghosts, whatever it is. And you have to, as you say, turtle up and fight them off or flee them to the next safe location. And so I would say that the other sort of half of a survival scenario besides the turtle up. Is the chase, right? That you are running away from the monsters and you always have to make the sort of tactical decision is it better to fight them off briefly and do some damage and buy some lead, or is it better to just keep going as fast as we can and hope to outdistance them? And you may be running to a safe spot, like an Island that is miraculously free of zombies, or you may be running until daylight dawns and all the uh, vampires have to go back into their coffins and not chase you through this little uh, Balkan town that you've been trapped in. And that is sort of the other question of survival is, survival for what if you're just surviving to survive like in a zombie movie it may indeed be as as dark and awful and one-shotty as you say if you're surviving to an end to either to save the life of a of an innocent or to save your own lives by getting to a safe place in space or time then it can be a more traditional role-playing challenge right
0: right and the trick there is to make Escape triumphant, which is right. a, a little hard to do. So the accent here, whether you're on the move or, or trapped, is that you are facing an enemy opposition that is much more powerful than you are. It's or you are in a sufficiently weak situation that an otherwise less powerful enemy can, can uh, get you. So going through the different headers that we look at in the uh, Adventure Crucible book from the Kraken. That's a chapbook that you'll find on Drive-Thru RPG. And so the first question for all of these different scenarios is, what does this do for a premise acceptance? And here you really have to look out for players who are interested in power and control and not willing to, even for the purposes of one change of pace episode or one one-shot, relinquish that because they're just not going to have a good time at all if they... Uh, If they're, I have to win every time. The whole thing here is well, you win if you live at the end, right? So set those expectations, and you might possibly want to remind people of those expectations uh, as it goes. Uh, The people who really love this are people who have a sort of a able to conjure a sense of gallows humor about the plight of their characters, right? The classic, we all, we were all destroyed by Cthulhu, people who are happy to have been torn apart after a convention s- scenario. This is for those folks. And it's also for tacticians who, for example, are going to be frustrated in a chain of fight scenario because I would like to avoid as many fights as possible and do things cleverly and not get into trouble and succeed By being cautious and planning well, they sort of can struggle in some other scenario settings. Well, this is for them, right? If you can avoid having the zombies Mm -hmm. rush in and the GM can find a way to make that feel, again, triumphant for the other players, this is your style, right? That you're going to try and get the maximum survival at the minimum risk.
1: Yeah, the the necessary thing with this one is that you have to pay attention to the emotional temperature at the table and the pacing of the game all the time in a way that you don't in other sorts of scenarios. With many scenario types, you can allow the players to dither, and that actually helps. Like in a mystery, for example, when if they're talking about the mystery, great, we're all involved. But if they aren't immediately under threat or feeling that respite and as feel it as a respite, not as a slack part of the game, then the scenario is in the danger of losing its sort of emotional heft, its point, right? right. So that's that's sort of the, the super challenge of this. And uh, you have to make sure that you know, as you say, you have sort of upbeats of triumph in the the horrible awfulness. So maybe you've got a, a zombie who's been really awful. And then when they cleverly, you know, hit him with a pipe and his head comes off, it's like, yay. And then nine more zombies pour in and they're like, all right, keep running.
0: Right. And so uh, in cutting to the fun and getting to the interesting meat of the scenario, as soon as you can, you want to start with the characters either immediately imperiled or on the threshold of imperiled. And so in a horror scenario, you might have the walk from, you know, the roadster up to the old house where they're going to be trapped, but you're not going to start with the meeting at the Miskatonic library where they all decide to go to the old house and buy all their stuff and go there. You're going to get to the survival part as quickly as, as you can. And so any sort of prep stuff. You know, use preparedness from gumshoe, use flashbacks to establish prior investigation. But whatever you have to do, get them under threat as soon as possible, just as you generally want to get the characters in a dungeon to the dungeon as as fast as you can or to some other dungeon-like area environment.
1: And what the good news is that once you've established the threat, then you've set the emotional hook for the scenario because it's like, live or die, that's that's your emotional hook. Your buy-in is... I don't want to die. That's a pretty universal one that I think most players can get behind, except, of course, the players who refuse to believe that their character should ever be under threat, which, as you say, maybe that's the day that uh, Steve takes off and and isn't part of the game that night. Right.
0: And so the key obstacle, as it has been in other scenario structures we've looked at uh, previously in this series, is the fight. But this time it's a fight where you are typically... Overwhelmed or have no particular benefit for participating in. It's not like the zombies have a bunch of treasure that you will get if you defeat them or you're trying to level up. And so you're sort of a reverse fight where you are trying to extricate yourself from combat whenever possible. And so typically you'll want to set these up because there's no benefit to being in the fights, unlike other scenarios. Find ways where they either have to engage in a fight they're trapped in an area that they can't get out of or give them an option that feels like a fun way to to get away from the the fight and not have one and so chases become your other sort of key obstacle type
1: Mm -hmm. and as with uh chases in general but especially in this you need to change them up because if the whole scenario is either chase or hunker if you're hunkering for a whole time, you better make that that uh, cabin in the woods really interesting because they're spending the whole game in it. And likewise with a chase, you can't just have the same you know chase through a an abandoned city street or an alley or whatever. There has to be stuff going on. There has to be you know physical changes, obstacles, weird uh, chain link fences across the thing. It's just stuff that you throw in to make the chase seem interesting the second, third, fourth, fifth time. And it can't just be, you know, exhaustion. That That is not interesting. That's the opposite. It may be sort of the intended effect on the player characters, but it should not be, you know, what the, the players are going through. They should be always uh, adrenalized, right? Right.
0: In a roving survival scenario, and this is where I think we get sort of more into the post-apocalyptic territory, you can drop in interstitial scenes where they interact with NPCs who are otherwise going to typically be kind of thin on the ground in uh, this uh, structure. And your challenge there is to get something that you need out of them. And they're also probably in the same desperate situation you are. So you want to get whatever it is that the group needs to survive, which might be information, equipment, uh, possibly reinforcements. So that might involve bargaining or uh, trying to inspire uh, the person you run into to uh, help you, uh, or you might be stuck with someone you have to protect. That's another pretty common uh, trope in uh, survival horror. That There's uh, someone where you have a really good reason why you can't just let the zombies eat them, but they're sort of a detriment to the team. So you might, you know, try and there might be a challenge where you try and inspire that person to do better. But basically, you're trying to find a way to even the odds, whether it's to, you know, find the dynamite you need to blow up the mutant hedgehogs or or whatever it is. But again, if it turns into some sort of you know ramble or typical equipment buying scene, you've got to refocus it on survival and the the stakes of all of these little uh, interstitial encounters.
1: Yeah, and even more in than in other scenarios, a lot of times you'll you'll especially in a post holocaust or post apocalypse scenario, you'll run into a you know a an NPC and you can't tell if you can trust them. Are they a, are they a a feral cannibal, uh, driven mad by the circumstances that you're running away from? Are they, you know, haunted by the ghosts or controlled by the vampires or whatever is chasing you? There is a lot of on-the-fly judgment and even if you have to welcome them in because they have shotgun ammunition, precious, beautiful shotgun ammunition, you are are always checking to, to see for, you know, signs of bites or whatever, some indication. And so the the lack of ability to trust even the most innocuous looking NPC is another sort of a emotional isolation element in this uh, type of scenario
0: and also you're under pressure you're afraid of your enemies you're trying to get away from them so naturally the scare obstacle is another sort of key moment that you can bring in some sort of thing where the psychic toll of being under threat is brought in and uh, that can be your classic horror uh, composure test or stability test or even in you know, something where there's nothing overtly supernatural going on or in a science fiction context. Still, you want to look at things that startle and un- unnerve the players and also put the psyches of their characters under threat. Survival scenarios escalate pretty readily. Uh, you just make sure that things keep getting worse and worse as you go. Mm-hmm. So it's a matter of thinking what the uh, moments of being put in under pressure are and stacking them from most horrible at the end to least horrible at the beginning. So, obviously, that's, you know, one Triffid first, and then three Triffids, and then, you know, a bunch of Triffids with a flamethrower, whatever it is, keep <laughs> building that on up. <laughs> the Triffid's got a flamethrower. He's got a death wish. He's the worst <laughs> kind of Triffid. <laughs> well, he, he's a very green, leafy Triffid. He's confident he's going to survive. All right, yeah, he's he's got a flamethrower and a mister. Point <laughs> and the big ending is something that not only is dealing with the biggest threat, but also... If you want to permit such a thing, the possibility of survival and triumph, uh, although often, especially I think at a convention one shot, many players will walk away dissatisfied if everybody lives at the end and they get away from the Triffids. You
1: you may just be running away to the uh, natural gas plant that you can then set off in a gigantic firebomb F.A.E. explosion that takes out a quarter of the town, but also all of the Triffids.
0: Right. And then there's the classic, you think you've gotten away, and then the jambs, and then more Triffids come. So that's survival. Having done survival, we have one more uh, scenario type to look at. We'll do that next week. And that uh, will then wrap up the different structures that I look at in uh, Adventure Crucible, which of course is a book in the Kraken chapbook series and is available on Drive-Thru RPG. <laughs>
1: Pell Press celebrates its favorite season. The spooky season. With a terrifying offer insidiously designed to suck you into a world of role-playing horror. Go to the Pell Press online store. With trembling hands, type in the promo code SCARY23.
0: And get 20% off on Trail of Cthulhu products. 20% off on Yellow King role-playing game products. 20% off on Esoterrorist products. And you guessed it.
1: 20% off on Fear Itself products. A deal this eldritch, this
0: reality-shattering, this disorienting, this pulse-pounding, can only intrude into our safe little existence while ghosts are ghosting and black cats are prowling. Specifically, until All Souls Day, November 1st. So that's promo code SCARY23 at the Pelgrane Press Web Store for 20% off all its most chilling gumshoe horror games. Until November 1st
1: the popcorn smell comes from the microwave the glowing screen is just a big old black plasma and the seats are way more comfortable even than the armchairs because you're at an at-home iteration of the cinema hut sitting on the couch watching movies and uh, Robin, you have just come away from, as with all aspects of the Robin Laws experience, the master class in sitting at home watching movies, the Robin and Valerie International Film Festival. Do you want to briefly recap what that is for the... Right, so this is the second
0: year in a row that Valerie and I, rather than going to the Toronto Film Festival, which we've broken up with for various reasons, have been recreating at home a program that is inspired by the way TIFF used to be, uh used to be in our Halcyon memories back when the only way to see obscure foreign films was to go and see two screenings at a particular theater at a particular time and mm-hmm. deal with all of the stress and nonsense of that. Well, now the difficulty is not in availability, but in doing enough research to find where the obscure films are and which of them will be good. And uh, what we found both years is we had a much higher hit rate is it because I have the advantage of having advanced knowledge of, uh, you know, more people have seen these things. They will pick ones that were good. So we watched uh, 44 movies or 45 if you want to count the fact that one of them was four hours long and had quite a a good time and less exhausting, less punishing, and as you suggest, uh, on more comfortable furniture. And so I thought uh, what I would do is uh, highlight some of the more sort of geek-facing ones that we looked at because one of the program's, of uh, TIFFs gone by that we're emulating is the Midnight Madness uh, program or their sort of defunct Vanguard series, which used to sort of be less intense, but still genre-like foreign or independent titles. And so here's the ones that you, the listener, might well be most interested in. I'm going to start off by talking about You Won't Be Alone. This is an Australian film, financing-wise, but in terms of where it is set and the language it's in, it's Serbian. It's by a director named uh, Goran Stolevski, and it's set in 19th century Macedonia, and a a girl at birth is marked by a wolf-eateress. Uh, which is a sort of a horrible forest hag who uh, drinks blood and, should she desire, sort of take the gore and viscera of her slain victims and sort of stuff them into herself and then transform. So she's a sort of a cross between a hag and a shapeshifter and a vampire. She marks this young girl and the girl is eventually claimed by her and is on the path to becoming another one of these creatures. But she wants to live among people. And if you have the ability to transform yourself into your victims, well, that actually is a a splendid advantage in trying to live among and understand uh, people and and retain the humanity that has been stolen from you. So, it has a mythic folktale sort of vibe to it. Zalewski kind of creates an atmosphere that I would describe as, what if Terrence Malick made a horror movie? Until Terrence Malick does make a horror movie, this is as close as you're going to get But it's uh, atmospheric and dark and thorny, well shot, uh, kind of dreamy. So it's not a horror film in that you are terrified throughout. It's definitely a horror film in its theme and the uh, existence of the wolf eateress.
1: And the fact that it's all about a wolf eateress, which I guess would make it horror. The next movie that you have on the list is The Artifice Girl by Franklin Rich. And uh, this seems uh, more SF than horror, but there's sort of a. you know, uh, is it or isn't it? Type suspense question, right?
0: It's definitely not just science fiction, but very uh, thinky science fiction. And so, this is about. It's a has a three act structure. It could almost be a stage play, except it is not stagey in its execution, and so it has mm-hmm. film style acting. With, uh, but it's very dialogue driven, and it is all about. It's yet another entry into the artificial intelligence artificial consciousness series of films that we're currently dealing with. And this is about someone who creates a chatbot that is going to help him on his sort of freelance efforts to entrap sexual predators, who he then turns over to the authorities. It starts off with the authorities finding out who he is and making him work for them. Then it flashes forward in time to another point where the project is even further along. And then... The final act. Uh, one of the lead characters is suddenly played by Lance Henriksen, so he's aged quite a bit, mm-hmm. and he's dealing with the final consequences of having created this person who now is embodied in a sort of an android form. So it's it's a debate film, but it's also very uh, emotional, and it is strangely compelling for its dialogue-driven, thinky format. All right. Something that sounds somewhat thinky, but not as dialogue-driven. This
1: seems to me like sort of a sped-up primer, but it's uh, Japan's Junta Yamaguchi Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes.
0: So this is really fun. This is a definitely a comedy, and it has aspects of bedroom farce in it, not the sexual side, but the running in and out-of-door side. Mm-hmm. So a cafe owner discovers that the TV... In his cafe is somehow showing the same thing as his TV screen in his apartment upstairs, uh, one flight up, except the apartment is two minutes ahead in time or behind. I forget. It gets so confusing. You'll have to watch it yourself and see. Mm. And so he and the other his friends and the other cafe worker run back and forth to communicate with each other over a two minute time gap. And the people from the future are able to tell the people two minutes in the past what to do because they know it happened two minutes ago. And so they decide, well, two minutes isn't very much. That's not very useful. What if we get the monitor and bring it down into the other room so that they're reflecting into each other and creating a sort of a wave of different monitor effects And you'll be surprised, Ken, to learn that things spiral out of control. That's
1: madness. I would would have thought that that would have been the safest, simplest, most normal thing to do with your weird time-traveling television monitor.
0: But the real hook is that it's shot in a single take. (laughs) So when they run up, to the other monitor, the camera follows them up when they run back down with the monitor. And so, it's one of those things where it's, it's like Russian arc where they had to do the whole thing mm-hmm. all the way through and not blow it up. <laughs> Except ever. if Russian arc was fast. <laughs> Except if Russian arc was fast and comedic and had time travel in it. Right. but Sort of has time travel in yeah. it. Yeah. And so, it has to be a little short in order to, you know, not kill all the performers. But it is a, a lot of fun and is uh, mind-bending in the best uh, twisty, timey-wimey uh, sort of way.
1: All right. Uh, this next film has some sort of uh, maybe uh, demons in it and also Adele Exarchopoulos, which kind of should sell it to anyone. It's The Five Devils by Leia Misius What can you say about
0: that? Well, first of all, what I would say is that this compelling French art house movie with a Stephen King plot element in it has been very confusingly marketed Mm -hmm. in North America. So the sort of image uh, that you get with it makes you think that it has like a a sort of a witchcraft or demonic element. Well, actually the five devils are the mountains that are nearby to the main characters in their little, little town. I'm going to slap France so hard. Right. Uh, So (laughs) what it's really about is a, uh, an, Very observant eight year old whose life is disrupted when her aunt gets out of a psychiatric facility and comes home to live with her mother and father. And there's something spooky about her. And it turns out that she can sort of go and see back into the past and she begins to slowly in bits and pieces see the uh, terrible event in the backstory that led to the disruption of everybody's lives. And that so it's kind of a Stephen King noir. Yes, but it's shot in a very French art house sort of style. So if it had had a poster that had looked kind of like a seventies Stephen King movie, I think you would have a better shot at what it is. And again, this is handled. It is not a horror film, but it uses horror, themes and images to tell uh, a compelling, dramatic story. Fantastic. Well, speaking of
1: things that sell you just with one line from the summary, Hong Sun Kim making a movie in South Korea about maybe a werewolf? Project Wolf Hunting. That's like
0: bacon avocado cheeseburger. None of that was bad. Right. The one thing about this is that, well, not to, I don't want to spoiler it, but of the three classic monsters that this very effectively and very gorily, in a, this, this, this is sort of the opposite of the thing I just described. This is a high octane, super violent people trapped on a ship getting attacked by a monster thing. So note
1: that I've never threatened to slap South Korea. So the,
0: the plot is a whole bunch of prisoners due to a plot device that enables the plot (laughs) are being shipped as extradited prisoners from uh, Vietnam back to their native Korea. And they all have to be on the ship. And there's something horrible on the ship with them. And it's not a werewolf. It's not a Dracula. So if you think of your other three major monster types and think of the most Terminator-like, super violent version of that, that's what they're up against.
1: Well... I'm still super excited by it. It's definitely, you know, on the short list for my own spooky season viewing. And uh, let's finish it up with, I guess this is preteens and weird monsters showing up. So it's a combo of the last two. And of course, you know, what's the average of South Korea and France in film? It's Finland, Hannah Bergholms hatching.
0: Right. So this is uh, centered on a, a preteen gymnast whose influencer mom is exerting considerable control over her life in an effort to make her and her athletic pursuits part of the uh, perfect existence that she's documenting for her audience with her iPhone. But the girl begins to taste a bit of rebellion when she goes out of the woods and she finds a weird egg. Mm. And at the beginning, the thing that pops out of the egg is this horrible, grotesque, bird-like thing. But then it changes. It changes. It becomes even more like the little girl and uh, becomes a very potent metaphor for how mother daughter conflicts arise when uh, the preteen starts to just become a teen. And uh, it's funny. It has a, a tongue in cheek uh, manner and a brilliant tongue in cheek production design, and is another fun, well made, well constructed example of international horror.
1: And now, one of the things that I saw on the RVIF lineup. Uh, that you didn't put in the, in the script for today was how to blow up a pipeline. And I assume that's just because what would be the point in just assuring everyone that Ken was completely right to make it one of the 10 best films of last year? I, I assume I've already covered it completely and perfectly. And why would you? add to that, but just add to that.
0: It didn't have enough of a geek aspect for me to add it, but I'm not sure it will be on my top 10 list, but I would strongly recommend it. It's a very good procedural of people doing exactly what it says in the title. So it's from the point of view of a group of eco-terrorists who are putting together uh, their assault on, guess what, a pipeline. And it uh, is a great example of the procedural form of the suspense Of people putting something together under pressure. Extremely well done.
1: Pulse pounding tension and uh, classic caper structure, plus blowing up a pipeline. What do you want? What else do you want in life? Uh, Anyway, go check out the RVF write-up on the Ken and Robin TalkAboutStuff.com webpage. Robin did the whole lineup of all 44 films, and maybe you'll dig into some of those and find those super interesting as well. This has been But the Tip of the Iceberg, and uh, as always, once we see the tip of the iceberg, we're getting off the boat and into another segment.
0: The best of Ask the is now available at
1: DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013 that's spelled F-E-N-I-X can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. and such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis and Pete Nash. Also find DICE, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory.
0: And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. and if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish,
1: not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix
0: and the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role playing game Western. How do you say "slap leather varmint" in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln
1: on drive through. Ensure the survival of this podcast alongside such Patreon backers as... Jason Sullivan, Toonspew, Chris McCarthy,
0: Dan O'Hanlon, and Eric Parks. It's time once more to Ask Ken and Robin, and this time around, beloved Patreon backer Tom Abella poses a two-part question. And first... How would you run a campaign where the PCs were involved in a failed and forgiven, uh, and that, of course, is in ironic quotes, mm-hmm. coup against an autocrat, only to realize that the forgiveness part wasn't quite real? I'm thinking Knights Black Agents meets Armando Iannucci, but I am sure you have some more thoughts. And we'll get back to the second question, but Ken, obviously, this is a reference to Evgeny Prigozhin who we mm-hmm. gave his own a segment to before the Ukraine conflict, or I guess early on in the yeah, Ukraine? during the Ukraine conflict,
1: but before he became sort of the breakout media star of the Ukraine conflict, with,
0: you know, memes and hijinks. It's back when he still needed explaining by us, at any rate. Everyone,
1: yeah, so eager to, to see what Evgeny was up to, and he was just as eager to see what air defense doing, and of course he found out what air defense doing at the culminating moment of his life, when it blew him out of the sky over Tver, and uh, he and everyone else on his plane sp- smashed into the Siberian tundra, a happy ending made only slightly less happy by the fact that there was a perfectly innocent stewardess on the plane who probably was just trying to pick up an extra shift, you know, pay for school or something. Feel bad about that, but... Right,
0: and it's hopefully a prologue to something bad happening to uh, the person who ordered him. Right, well, well it's,
1: it's certainly a bad thing happened to a bad guy and to nine of his horrible friends, so we just have to be settling yeah. for that now. But yes, it would be nice if it is involved somehow in a toppling series of dominoes, that smushes good old Putin. But that's too early to say, too early to tell. What we do know is that Prigozhin gave us a almost classical model of a sort of Coriolanus style of the guy who is out there, you know, in his mind, getting it done for the motherland, looking around, nobody else is getting anything done for the motherland. He's the only capable man, the only honorable man by his lights. And he, you know, lets it snap marches on moscow like coriolanus and then stops stops in the middle and there's a big open box of question marks why he uh ended his mutiny was it because no other units of the military came out with him was it because he took the temperature of his men and they were not super interested in shooting their way into moscow he took the temperature of moscow and thought he was not super interested in shooting into moscow or you know, maybe you just got cold feet at the last minute. You know, it's a big deal to, you know, invade your home capital. And many, many people have no doubt thought of it and then thought, no, I'm not doing that. Right. So,
0: and, and many of those bullet points could go together as well. Yeah, right.
1: It's a, it's a, there's, it's, it's a complex blend of, of what was going on during that just absolutely nuts period in, uh, late June. And then he gives up his coup. He marches back into his quarters or gives up his mutiny, whichever it turns out to have been. And then, you know, all is forgiven. He can go off to Bolaris and run his Wagner group for Bolaris, except he keeps flying around on planes. He was in Mali trying to shore up the Wagner empire in, uh, Central Africa. And then he flew back. Uh, and he was on his way to Moscow on a plane when, as I mentioned, blown out of the sky and crashed into the tundra.
0: And it not only mirrors Coriolanus, but also the classic, if you go further back in his life and trace it from the beginnings of him being a petty criminal who gets into catering, using uses catering to get close to the Kremlin and the corridors of power, and then becomes head of a mercenary group, and then suffers this, in retrospect, inevitable fall He's also following the... Well, the fall was
1: certainly inevitable
0: once the wings came off the plane. Yes, and (laughs) probably even slightly before then. At any rate, that's also the trajectory of the gangster film. Right, yeah. Um, It's the classic Scarface, Goodfellas type story. And so you could do that in a a number of different ways. And uh, you could set it up as a drama system game where you're playing all of the members of his inner circle with the understanding that eventually you are on a, a Doom arc and that it's only going to last so long. You could add vampires to it to make it Night's Black Agents, uh, as uh, Tom also suggests. There's Skullduggery, which is the generic version of the Dying Earth Rules, I think would be a great way to do the story as well and essentially I think it would
1: have a really good star wars vibe you know you set it in some star wars or star wars like universe and your your progosian character is your admiral thrawn or maybe even the the sith guy who is the only believer in the old uh, ways of the force and he discovers the empire is run by you know corrupt human bureaucrats and he goes all sith mad on them and then stops and, you know, maybe you're in, you know, people who were with him in the rebellion, and then he stops. And now you have to figure out why did he stop? What's going on? What made him, you know, not go and, and level Coruscant and, and kill the emperor. And now you have to figure out, do we want to do that? Do we want to stay with him? And uh, the sort of unraveling the mystery aspect can be part of on what you're doing while still uh, having, I think enough lasers and uh, robots to make it not a uh, entirely on the nose, torn from current events type story.
0: Right. And so you could also, I think probably do a horror version of, of it where people are gradually, when they get to the front, they're being parasitized in some way. There's some sort of awful sort of spreading thing. And perhaps he realizes that, you know, the antidote is back with the autocrat and he's got a, Strike a deal with that. So, you could, there's different ways that you could uh, genreify it. Uh, I think, in this case, though, to get to the second question, I think the whole point of it would, in fact, be to refer to uh, the Progosian story. And so, the question is, how soon is too soon to run this campaign? And I think, with something like this, the sooner the better. Mm -hmm. The black humor of something. Is something that is available for you to play with while the events are going on. And, and while they're fresh in people's minds. Fresh in people's minds. And then later on, you're more likely to get tut tutted for playing with something that is quite serious. This has the advantage of having the huge number of, of victims of Russian aggression are not on stage suffering, and you can portray them as perhaps backstage heroes the uh Ukrainian intelligence service might be NPCs who are sort of pushing you toward your doom in this but to not have a blackly humorous attitude toward someone horrible being destroyed by someone else horrible to to say that is bad i think is a profound insult to slavic yeah. culture <laughs> yeah
1: yeah slavic culture gets black humor out of good people being destroyed by horrible people for goodness sake so yeah, yeah. i i feel like you know, as with every question, like, you know, should I run this? It's not, you know, there's not some, you know, international criminal court of role-playing games at The Hague. This is a question for you. How how funny do you think it is? How funny do you think your players will think it is? How much juice can you wring from it at the table? If If you're the only person who's you know, uh, constantly refreshing Ukraine news on the Twitter, then maybe this is a you joke, not an everybody joke. But if your whole crowd has enjoyed uh, the antics of Prigozhin, watching him, you know, enjoying his, his uh, disguises and all the other nonsense that he had going on, then this might be an ideal thing for you to do in your game. And you, you can just do it as, as you say, as a skullduggery game or as a a sort of a, uh, a dramatic series of, you know, horrible mistakes that lead to your own character's downfall if you wanted to play it out that way. That could be great fun, too.
0: Right, because if you all enjoy something that you think other people might find distasteful, you can either decide to post that on social media later or not, mm-hmm. <laughs> depending on yeah. how much you care right. about other people scolding you. And uh, once we've reminded everyone that they can choose to post or not post on social media, it's time for us to head uh, through an exciting commercial to whatever lies on the other side.
1: In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy.
0: The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources
1: of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden.
0: Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation... <laughs> In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An
1: updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new
0: art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlath tap. Find the fungi on the Mina
1: airfield.
0: And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green the Conspiracy.
1: From Arc Dream Publishing.
0: It's time once more to walk up the creakety cobweb stairs. We're going to pause on the landing to wave to the painting of the uh, great and mystic fire salamander and then head on into the parlor of the consulting occultist, who this time has been beckoned by beloved backer Jacob Borsma, who says magical history of the Netherlands. In the Philip Van Stoss segment in episode 554, Ken mentions he's part of a different magical group in the Netherlands. As a Dutch person, I always thought our country was rather devoid of magical traditions. So would really appreciate some background on this and other magical groups and traditions of my home. And I guess the secret is if you're a Dutch magician, don't tell other Dutch people about it and don't let them write it about it in their books. Right. Keep it on the DL. Well, certainly the advantage of speaking a language
1: that is spoken only by a few million people means that when you do write about it, English speaking podcasters don't pick up on it as fast. (laughs) And also, you know, not all magical groups are full of self-aggrandizing blowhards, like the French groups and the English groups were. So, you know, being Dutch magicians, they may have been, you know, sober family people who went home and tended their tulips after trying to summon demons. Uh, who can say? Right.
0: But- so, we've got a list of names here. Right. Which I'm going to go through, just like you went through the list of movies that I <laughs> went to see. And uh, we're going to start with the Chevalier de la Jubilation, who is from the early 18th century. And had a worthy hermetic society? Yeah, this is
1: the group that Philip von Stosch was a member of. And this is an early version of basically the Hellfire Club, in that it was a bunch of people who had orgies to celebrate anti-clerical opinions. So, in this particular case, it was probably gay orgies, rather than, you know, you can say straight orgies, uh, Hellfire Club-style straight orgies. But it was... A, a bunch of French exiles in the Netherlands. So, I guess in this case, Jacob would be right. These are French people showing up in the Netherlands, bringing their magical traditions there. But it's a very much part of this antinomian, anticlerical hellfire club vibe that is spreading across Northern Europe in the same period. In 1710, you also have a hellfire club in London. You have a hellfire club in Ireland, I believe, at this time. So, the Chevalier de la Jubilation, the Knights of Joy, uh, the Knights of Jubilation are just there to write angry propaganda against king louis and also get it on and that's their vibe but it's also got a magical hermetic uh quality because they are celebrating this in the name of a uh revealed pantheistic god Uh, we don't have enough records to say if it was just good old you know apollo or dionysus or somebody or if it was a special wonderful god we just have like their their uh, minutes from one of their meetings and a couple of speeches and those were gathered up later and published but we don't know even how long the Chevaliers were in business, but they refer to themselves as a worthy hermetic society, which implies that they were at the very least aware that they were on the edges of the occult.
0: So after reading an organization as if it was a person, I'm pretty sure this is a person, Johan Weyer, who lived from 1515 to 1588, who's a demonologist.
1: Yeah, Johann Weyer is a lawyer and he got drawn into the witch trials and he basically said, As a lawyer, I cannot emphasize how bad these trials are. There's no standards of evidence. There's no constant law code. These just seem like arbitrary ways to shut people up. I'm against it. Wrote a big old blast against the legal understanding of, of uh, witchcraft. And, but he did say that said, Satan is definitely alive in the world and he's full of demons. And here is my list of all the cool demons. And here are all the magical spells you can use to summon these cool demons. And some people say, this is why you're writing a parody of demonologies that we just don't have anymore because he wrote a better parody than the real ones. Other people are saying, why are, is trying to sort of have his cake and eat it too. He's saying there's real demons, that's no excuse for sloppy law. And so you know you pay your money and you take your choice. But he he winds up being the most influential demonologist in Western history, certainly, because his list is the basis of the Legimaton and all of the other demonologies that you know go down after that.
0: A generation later we have Eust Balbian, who is an alchemist.
1: And this is where we begin to get into the fact that by the end of the 16th century and beginning of the 17th century, Holland is, or the Netherlands by and large, are the richest, most literate, and most generally free-thinking part of Western Europe. Uh, you can make arguments about what was going on in the Ottoman Empire, but certainly if you're in, you know, what is conventionally considered Europe. Holland does not have witchcraft laws anymore. They ended those in 1592 when they said you can't use torture to extract a confession. You can be criminally prosecuted for being a Catholic or the wrong kind of Calvinist, but it's basically just pay a fine. Everyone's cool with it. And of course, the publishing industry in the Netherlands is gigantic and people are publishing the works of weirdos and uh, nuts and mystics from all over Europe. And that publishing community then because they're, you know, published in educated people, Latin, everyone can pick that up and and read about it. And that creates these sort of occult practitioners and groups. Uh, Jus Balbien is one of the first name Dutch alchemist that I found since the probably imaginary Isaac of Holland, who flourished circa 1400. But we only know him because he's mentioned by 17th century alchemists from this exact era. So the notion that I would have is that Robert Boyle and people like that are saying, where are all the alchemists? We know they're in Holland. Therefore, their progenitor must be this Isaac of Holland who I've heard about. And then they sort of like uh, ascribed various texts to him. But Yus Balbian is the first alchemist
0: that we really know about. Speaking of publishing and straddling the 16th and 17th centuries is Abraham Villens von Beierland.
1: Yeah, he's a publisher. He publishes a lot of things. And he is the main publisher of Burma. Uh, who, a mystic who I believe we talked about in a very early segment that began your crusade against mysticism in all its forms, Robin. But he also translated and published the Corpus Hermeticum, the keystone of, of Western occultism going back to, you know, at the very least the early Renaissance and possibly back to the late classical era, depending on how old you believe the Corpus Hermeticum is. Uh, and Bayerland is very much a, a sort of an influencer and an aggregator, and he has this wide, group of friends and acquaintances that sort of feed into his occult and scientific and commercial and every other kind of interest. He's, you know, he's a, he's a publisher. So he publishes what sells. And quite clearly he thought that the Corpus Hermeticum would sell in Holland in 1610. And I don't
0: think he was wrong. Uh, We're going to jump ahead. Another generation It's well within the 17th century now for Johann Rudolf Glauer, who is both a chemist and an alchemist. Yeah, this is
1: a tradition that you'll find out. This is true all over the Western world, that alchemy begins to separate itself into experimental chemistry as well as what is called chemical medicine, which is medicine that is anything besides bloodletting and leeches. Paracelsus, of course, is the classic guy who begins this you know, exploration out into chemistry and into medicine from just alchemical practice. And uh Lauer is, he contributes huge amounts to actual chemistry, but he's also a straightforward alchemist. And this is a very, very common thing that goes, you know, on Van Helmont, who is a, another real chemist. He's Belgian, he's from Brussels, so I didn't count him. But I think he might have thought he was Netherlandish because that was the Spanish Netherlands at the time. Anyway, Van Helmont is another classic example of a great chemist who is also an alchemist and is part of this whole intellectual ferment. And as you will see, we have a lot of alchemists that could very plausibly be read as part of an alchemical tradition that, you know, um, a Van Helmont would have read Glauer, would have corresponded with Glauer, and then the later ones we're getting to would have been taught by people who were taught by Glauer, or even taught possibly by Glauer or his uh, immediate circle.
0: At this point, though, listeners are going, enough with the alchemists, how about a Kabbalist? So, in a pretty much exact contemporary of Glauer's is benjamin musafia who's part of the amsterdam jewish community
1: yeah the amsterdam jewish community because i mentioned uh, the netherlands are the most free thinking and liberal of polities in the west europe and so they have a large and open and allowed jewish community and uh jews move there from all over the world uh musafia i think moves there from spain and sets up business as a rabbi and is also a Kabbalist. and this Tradition in Amsterdam of sort of intellectual exploration within your own community is absolutely held up by the Jewish community. And so there's lots of Kabbalists. Musafi is just the most famous one to come out of Amsterdam, apparently. But he's part of this very long tradition. And in fact, you have to not be a Kabbalist to get thrown out of the Amsterdam Jewish community. You have to be an atheist like Spinoza. Uh, Spinoza actually manages to get kicked out of Holland, which is a real triumph, I guess, but if you're a loud and annoying enough atheist you can you can get it done but musafia is again almost sort of a representative figure he's probably the you know most famous and capable of these representative figures but uh, the christian kabbalists are also working in holland and uh, publishing in holland and using their access to the jewish community in amsterdam to inform their christian Kabbalists. so you have again a german kabbalist named Reuchlin who is moves to amsterdam for like 10 years soaks it all up from the Jewish community and then moves back to Germany and, and writes his Christian uh, Kabbalah book. And that's, again, part of how Kabbalah flows into things like John Dee is through Musafia's, like, immediate predecessors.
0: Right. Uh, now we've got, uh, can we just lump these guys together? Uh, so we've got some more chemists and alchemists. We have mm-hmm. uh, Johann Friedrich Schweitzer, a.k.a. Helvetius, who I guess apotheosized into a font later. Theodore Kirkring and Willem Evier, a.k.a. William Ewerth, Is there a standout or interesting alchemist among them?
1: Helvetius is probably the most interesting as an alchemist because he is a chemist and he writes a big book about how alchemy is nonsense and real chemistry is where it's at. And then he meets a mysterious stranger who gives him a piece of the philosopher's stone and he tests it. And sure enough, he makes gold with it and he writes a memoir. He's a real scientist, so he writes it up. He says, well, who knew? And he calls the book like something like on the golden calf talks about how he made gold with this philosopher's stone. I think big Helvetius stands say he must have been doing a bit. This is like a straightforward, you know, so-called style parody where he's presenting this nonsense in a, you know, sober voice, but joke was on him. Or
0: he's soberly setting himself up to sell nonsense later. Right. Or is actually, like many, many scientists,
1: easily gulled by a sharper, and that's what happened. So I think people want to sort of save Helvetius from himself, But he's the most famous figure in this because Helvetius' testimony was unimpeachable. It was very, very real. It was, uh, you know, like, um, uh, like if Einstein was out there saying, you can talk to ghosts. And everyone's like, okay, I guess you can. Kirkring is, is just yet another example of the chemical physician who is also an alchemist. He's tied in with the Hartlib circle of, of alchemical scholars that's based in England. And then Willem Evert, uh, goes so far as to move to England. He's a distiller and, uh, alchemist and ship's surgeon for a bit. And, uh, then he, he, he would go to like far corners of the world. He would go on expeditions to, to bring stuff back sometimes. And then he moves to England and he becomes Newton's lab partner and instructor in alchemy after
0: 1702, which is, I think, you know, a pretty good element for your resume. We have another organization, the Brethren of the Angelic Life created by a guy named uh, johan Gichtel.
1: yeah gictel starts this in 1668 and this is again boma gone wrong he reads in boma that uh, the true man is uh, not tied to the physical body and the thing about the physical body that he's especially not tied to are the genitals and so adam in this reading of boma doesn't have genitals until he sins and the punishment that god gives him is to give him genitals and his sin is not eating the apple but asking for eve because god says you can just fission and produce a baby you know just by you know basically expelling it through a hole in your body and adam says that sounds awful i don't want to do that make eve do it and that's the sin of adam so they're attempting to become pre-adamic humans through magic and uh, mystical meditation and theurgical ceremonies, and they last as long as Gichtel does, and they have you know uh, a little common house where all the brethren live, and everyone is transcending gender all the time. Uh, there's a, a woman who lives with them, and they love pointing at her and say, "You wouldn't even be able to know she's a woman. She's transcended gender, so great." So Gichtel is maybe not the role model that today's gender uh, activists want to follow. But he is certainly a
0: weird magical mystic in the Netherlands. I'll say that for him. We're going to jump forward in time into the mid 19th century when guess what? Theosophy takes over. And so there's a a guy named Rolf Takens. And his nickname is Siak Libra. And he's an astrologer and an occultist.
1: Yeah, that's the name under which he publishes his various astrology and theosophy books. He is begins as an astrologer and everyone starts following as an astrologer. He's very famous. And then he writes, but what of the inner mysteries? And that's where he talks about, you know, uh, past life regressions and all the other new age, you know, pure thought stuff. He talks about Anthroposophy, the the mystical means of education. He talks about Atlantis, just, I guess, you know, has extra space in the book and throws that in. He's also big into the tarot. So, the astrology is the, the main thing that he does, but he is a full-on occultist. And he, you know, is very, very famous in the Netherlands. And he dies in uh, circa 1930. There was a lot of dispute on the internet as to when he died. I went with the most logical and uh most seemingly solid one, but he goes all over the world. he's in Cairo between nineteen o four and nineteen o eight so he probably met Crowley when Crowley was down there, so that's good fun and then he was in Italy during World War One, which is strong, and then leaves Italy after nineteen eighteen and that's sort of when he disappears from the you know the public knowledge, but his books keep getting republished. And so that's uh, Rolf Takens, a.k.a. Aqua Libra. And if you are a, a Dutch astrologer, you
0: are still, you know, you know, footnoting him today. He's their big guy. But there's a whole theosophical movement. There's a society. There's a library with 25,000 volumes. It's a big deal. And the Heirs to that are like the heirs to theosophy elsewhere.
1: Yeah, they're sort of elderly weirdos many times, and then there will be a a young person who sweeps in either a genuine convert or a huckster who thinks we can, you know, use theosophy to make money from goofs. And uh the the cycle begins again. Uh, the Theosophical Library in Amsterdam is still there. You can still go to it. Uh, the University of Amsterdam, by the way, has the only graduate program in Western magic and occultism, I think, in the world that that's a specifically designed program. You can major in occultism there.
0: So your character with a uh, two points and occultist went there.
1: We may have gone to the University of Amsterdam. Yeah, that was set up in the 80s, I believe. We also have in that sort of uh, Cthulhu era, we have the Free Religion Temple. Uh, which began as a sort of universalist sect. One could argue the great traditions of Dutch, uh, free thinking, but, uh, it starts in 1922. Uh, it runs till 1937 or 1927 when it falls apart in guess what? Occult backbiting. But it is, uh, very much an attempt to combine theosophy, anthroposophy, and just this plain old occult as part of a, you know, our way of worship is to study this mystical world and to study it using all of the tools available to us and it it lasts uh, they build the temple uh, where they think well everyone can worship here it'll be great and much like people who build universal game systems it turns out everyone likes their temple thank you very much so i i think the temple got turned into a garage at some point but for a bit it's uh it's flourishing along and of course there's rosicrucians in the 30s yeah uh, the Lectorium Rosicrucianum. it's set up by a guy named Jan von Rickenborg. He may have changed his name because his brother is Zvere Willem Leen and a lady named Catharose de Petri, and they founded this occult society. They, you know, like all occult societies, they claim they founded it two decades before they founded it, but it gets set up in 1935. It's briefly shut down by the Nazis, and then after the liberation, they come back and they uh, meet a bunch of French occultists and cross-pollinate. And uh, it ran until 1968, when one of the founders, I think it was Lean, died. And Catharos De Petri said, "Now we're going to run it my way." And of course, there was an occult schism. But I think the Lectorium Rosicrucianum is still ticking along under Catharos De Petri's handpicked successor. I think she finally passed in 1990 or something like that. So there's still this fuddy-duddy Rosicrucian cult slash study group still ticking along there in Amsterdam.
0: And then finally of course the New Age movement succeeds the Theosophists and the Rosicrucians, and you've picked a figure from the New Age uh, to close us out.
1: Yeah, there's a lady named Melly Uildert. Who is an astrologer and also very much into alternative healing, so lots of you know traditional medicine and uh, uh Reiki and other kind of woo. Uh, she's also a new age guru in general. She writes for the very popular New Age magazine Ankh Ruid and is uh, a big figure there. And in uh, I think 1984, someone wrote a pamphlet saying, like many new agers, she is a horrendous racist and should be thrown out of the sacred precincts of Ankruid magazine, and indeed she was. And so she moved to Belgium, where apparently no one cared that she was a horrific racist. And she kept writing books and things, but it was now just a Meli Uildert cult as opposed to being, I think, part of the, the general movement of the New Age in the Netherlands, which was, you know, you know, you're talking about a country was that was full of hippies from America, many of them. Obviously the New Age is gonna be spawned there even if the native traditions of the Netherlands weren't relatively open and welcoming to that kind of thought and hadn't been go- going all the way back to the, you know,
0: 1580s. Right. So to sum up then, the Netherlands is chock-a-block with occultists, but not necessarily super entertaining ones with vivid anecdotes. Because uh, even they're, you know, the most fun ones are a bunch of guys who came in from France.
1: Right. And uh, maybe uh, Helvetius who may or may not have genuinely been a cult so much as an unsuccessful parodist or a, a rube Hard to say.
0: Well, that certainly gives you a a whole lot of uh, names to draw on when your characters research an occult mystery that uh, takes them to the Netherlands or uh, perhaps your character who studied, as we suggested before, at the University of uh, Amsterdam. And uh, so uh, there you go. There's there's your Dutch occultist.
1: I mean, Van Helsing, of course, we know goes to the University of Leiden right there in Holland. So he's... Part of that, maybe the Rolf Tekken's and theosophy scene, that's his vibe.
0: Well, on that note, I think we can declare another uh, podcast episode successfully completed, but we'll be back with another one a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors: Atlas Games, Palgrain Press, Asdfgeln, Arc Dream, Dork Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by
1: James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at Patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin.
0: Place this podcast in a stroopwaffle-shaped circle of protection by joining such upstanding backers as Evan Hughes, Ryan McClelland, Theron Bretz, Pedro Garcia, and Kevin H. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Present
1: the gray alien point of view with our latest design. Nope, still not
0: us. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.Camp. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.